Hello, my name is Maiwa and welcome to Maiwa in Conversation, a podcast that aims to explore the unique perspectives of Africans. This season, I have conversations with Nigerians that are making an impact by disrupting societal and cultural norms, fighting against injustices, creating new paths and platforms, and who are showing that there are in fact limitless possibilities on the continent. On this episode, I'm talking to Ozaz Soko, also known as the Kitchen Butterfly. Ozaz is a culinary anthropologist, food historian, food writer, and an amazing chef. Ozaz documents her work on her blog, The Kitchen Butterfly, and on Instagram. She has also written incredibly thought-provoking pieces about Nigerian food that have featured in publications like Food 52 and as a part of the Goethe Institute's Latitude Project. For Ozaz, food is more than eating. Thank you for joining me today, Ozaz. Thank you for having me, Maya. Right, so let's begin our episode. What inspired your passion and intellectual interest in food? My passion and intellectual interest in food began probably in 2009. At that time, I was living and working in the Netherlands, and I was going through what I consider to be a personal crisis. I was in my early 30s. I was confused about who I was, where I was going. So I had all these questions about identity, meaning, my place in the world. And the way I navigated that was by turning to food. Um, I, I found this connection between Nigerian food and Brazilian food through the slave trade. And that stunned me because... Up till then, I didn't realize that Nigerian food existed beyond the shores of Nigeria. Um, But to find Nigerian food living, thriving, being, you know, across the waters in in the Caribbean, in parts of the American South, it just filled me with, at first, I didn't know what that feeling was. At first, I was confused about the how and the why. But in the end, I realized that enslaved people had held on to cultures and traditions orally um, and kept them alive for hundreds of years. And it felt like I was doing something similar by writing my blog and by chronicling Nigerian recipes, because I was at this point where I was was away from home, I was homesick. So I kind of felt a kinship between the enslaved people who held on to their culture and identity, and me, myself, who was struggling to find my place in the world, holding on to food as, as you know, as an identity marker. And, and that really took food for me from the realm of just functional and eating to this thing that involved emotions, that involved thought and reason and culture. So... 2009 was that defining moment. I feel like I can really identify with that because I feel like when you're living in Nigeria as a Nigerian, you take a lot for granted. And then when you're removed from that, you're really trying to find yourself and you're really trying to just, I don't know, keep aspects and elements of home within you. And um, I feel like when I was at university, it was the same where all of a sudden I was reading more about Yoruba culture. I was reading more about, you know, women's involvement in Nigerian politics and just trying to learn more about myself and also hold on to hold on to home as well. I also love that you continue to use the discourse of haute cuisine and gourmet cooking when you do describe Nigerian food. And I honestly think that, you know, Nigerian food is one of the best cuisines in the world. 
Why do you think Nigerian food has yet to be internationally recognized as being one of the best countries in the world for food? I feel like the West loves jollof rice, but seems unable to talk about it in the same way it talks about, you know, freshly made pasta or sushi. <sighs> I think there's a legacy of colonialism and colonial mentality. Foods of Black association don't tend to be spoken of highly. They, they tend to be dismissed and minimized. And what we see today is a legacy from times when the things Black people ate were slave food, the things West Africans ate were slave food. And we haven't been able, and this is not any fault of us, but, but, but the global North and its media haven't been able to dissociate us from our food, which we... I mean, that shouldn't happen. But they haven't been able to dissociate the legacy of what happened from the food they see or share and present now. And that's why, you know, food, our food doesn't get the airtime that it, that it deserves. Because when you put it side by side, uh, when you take Nigerian jollof rice and put it side by side, any red rice dish from across the world, jollof is likely to trump. You know, there's so many... Yeah, there's so many Nigerian <laughs> foods that honestly are mind-blowing in terms of the composition, in terms of the balance, in terms of the taste and the textures. But all of that is shrouded in, in cloaks of, of enslavement and slavery. And, and people, I don't know whether it's a response of guilt that stops um, that place from being made for us at the table. I don't know whether it's, it's, it's that... You know, yeah, I don't know whether <laughs> global mass, global North mass media feels guilty um, or just doesn't even rate our food. But I know that it's delicious when I compare Nigerian food with Italian cuisine, with name it, any cuisine, it stands heads and shoulders and sometimes even way above the rest. And um, I no longer bother myself as much with who is giving us recognition. I make sure that I am doing everything that I can to honor, to celebrate the legacy, but also the contemporary directions of Nigerian cuisine and West African cuisine. And just really putting that, putting that out beautifully, deliciously, in all the ways that I can to really honor it and, and pay homage to the to the legacy of the of the ancestors who who gave so much and did so much for us. I agree with you a hundred percent because at university I would be cooking and friends would want to taste what I was cooking because they were curious. And the moment they did, it was like they caught this bug and they were the ones kind of looking for Nigerian restaurants and takeout options, you know, to order and eat. And then when I started introducing them to not just, you know, jollof rice and chicken stew, but things like a goosey and okra and efor, it was like, literally, it was like awakening this desire for Nigerian food. And these were people who, you know, as you've said, come from Italy and all these places that are revered as amazing places in the world to eat. And I think what you said speaks to the fact that there's a politics around food and what is thought of as complex, fine cuisine and food worth traveling for. And I think one of the most obvious displays of this in mainstream thinking is what constitutes as healthy food. 
And I can't help but think that this is political and rooted, as you said, in racist colonial attitudes. For example, we can accept that Western cuisines and some Asian cuisines are healthy, you know, like Japanese cuisine and sushi, but Nigerian ingredients are demonized and we're encouraged to eat, you know, swallow made out of potatoes and oats. What are your thoughts on the alleged unhealthiness of Nigerian food? And why do you think wonder foods like quinoa introduced by the West are more popular than our own grains like fonio? First of all, you're, you're right in saying that food is political. Food is, food can be structured into a system that is used to oppress and, and exclude people. So food is very political. The case of demonizing Nigerian food makes me laugh, right? Because let's take palm oil, for instance. Palm oil is consistently compared with olive oil. But that's not fair because that's really comparing apples and oranges. They have totally different makeups, totally different compositions. And this harkens back to a time in the 1600s when palm oil was very popular um, through the Portuguese in Brazil. And what happened was palm oil was dismissed as food for the enslaved and the Afro-Brazilians. And there was a comparison that was made with olive oil, like, you know what, palm oil is, is for the black people, olive oil is greater. And that has persisted and lingered through time. It's an unfair comparison. The other thing is that palm oil is actually quite healthy when you look at it. It has similar, um, people complain about the level of saturated fats, but the level of saturated fats in palm oil is similar to what you have in butter and ghee. Yeah, it's about 50%. Mm. Now, the French go cook in butter yeah, they, and oil. They confit, which is a process of, of immersing things and cooking them in oil. Nigerians don't do that. We don't do that. We don't do that extent of confine, right? Yeah. So for me, we need to be comparing like for like. We need to be bringing similar things to the table when we do that comparison. What constitutes unhealthy? Our doors and our swallows are probably even more nutritious, right, compared with mashed potatoes, so for me, a lot of times when people make those comparisons, they're not comparing the same things. They're not looking at the same metrics. They're not comparing similar foods. Nigerian food is not unhealthy in the way that it, you know, it's made out to be. This for me is a legacy of slave trade. This is a legacy when, of when, you know, uh, enslaved people would have to boil and overcook their food because they got rations that were bad and spoiled. And that was the only way to make them edible, to deep frying stuff, to kind of kill germs. You know, people talk about how Africans and Nigerians and West Africans love a lot of hot sauce. But there was a time when on, on British Royal Navy boats, they used to douse, the, the soldiers doused um, spoiled rations in chili sauce, in hot sauce, to kind of mask the smell and, and to mask the fact that they were spoiled. All these are things that were done to us, but are still kept <laughs> as markers against us. If that isn't political, I don't know what is. 
because this is on the level of propaganda. This is taking a narrative that out of context, one that you also had a hand in, in causing, taking it out of context and using that against people. You know, it's, it's twisted, it's complex, but it is very political. And the end result, the, the game is to exclude, is to create a certain perception by using a certain language of power. Quinoa is great. Fonio is greater, mm-hmm. more accessible, grown, grown with less water, shorter harvest times. Is Fonio is super nutritious. It has a couple of amino acids that are rarely found in plant-based foods. So the key for me is how much West African Nigerian food is given scholarship is allowed to make its way into research where its benefits can be can be extolled and demonstrated to the world. Because obviously, he who controls the narrative has the greater power, right? So how much, if historically there hasn't been a lot of scholarship done on, on West African food, even on West Africa in general, if you look at some of the data, you'll find that Nigeria and West Africa have some of the lowest researchers per million people compared with the West. And that's not, that doesn't, at a glance, that might not seem to be um, the West's problem, right? But historically, again, back to times of oppression, back to times when Black people were not um, allowed to read or write. And so a whole history developed later. We actually didn't have historical records for the longest of time. And, and there's a ricochet and ripple effect. So things that happened during times of enslavement, 15th and um, 14th, uh, sorry, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century, 21st even, are still having massive effects on how our food is perceived, how we're perceived, and the access and availability of, of knowledge around our food. It's interesting you say that, you know, you mentioned the amazing health qualities of our indigenous ingredients, because I just think, you know, when you look at Eba and a bowl of effort, to me, it's obvious that there is health here. But then for some reason, people are unable to see that. Even Nigerians aren't able to see that. And they put things like you know, cheese and and all these Western ingredients that, like you said, have nothing on what we have. And I think it's really telling because um, my cousin owns a gluten-free bakery and she said the moment she tells people that there's cassava flour in her baking, they're instantly put off or sorghum. And she says to them, when you go to the UK and you buy something from M&S and it says tapioca flour, what do you think that is? And it's almost like any ingredient that's recognizable as indigenous and Nigerian is just instantly demonized and deemed to be inherently unhealthy. If that isn't political, I don't know what it is. I, I don't know what is. Yeah. If that isn't political, I don't know what is. Because that's that's the very goal of politics, to push a certain narrative, to demonize certain groups of people. And the key for me harkens back to our education. There is a complete disconnect between who we are and the history and geography that are taught 
to us about us. The history that we're presented with is not the full, complete whole history. Um, we don't do home economics anymore. We're completely disconnected with the things that are ours. And we have very little understanding of how valuable they are. And that's why the work that various people are doing, this podcast, the work that I do with my writing, various other people are doing, is really important because it's a real... It's about re-education and reframing and helping people understand what the history was and what its com- contemporary effects are. Like you say, cassava, tapioca flour, people don't even know the difference. People don't even, you know, tapioca is, you, you, you look on the internet and you see tapioca flour, tapioca starch, tapioca pudding, and it looks very great and amazing. And But that is divorced completely from the root cassava right and and so you find it lauded in one area and demonized in the other and if that isn't evidence of a deliberate attempt to separate I don't know what is and I think it's really interesting that you mention this idea of um you know, like redefinition and understanding and also education. Because I think a lot of the time when people want to, I hate this word, but elevate Nigerian food, it's all about redefinition and deconstructing to the point where it's barely recognizable. And I just think this is a very questionable agenda if we're trying to advance Nigerian food, because like you said, the fact of the matter is, Many people don't even fully understand what, what, you know, Nigerian food encompasses. For someone like me, who's lived in Lagos my whole life, I have a very limited understanding of Nigerian food that is definitely very Yoruba-centric. Um, do you think this push for, you know, redefining Nigerian food, do you think it's a bad thing? Or do you think that there, there does need to be this redefinition of our cuisine? I think that everything is needed right now. We need to be showing that we have history and heritage. That's very important, that we have a legacy. We also need to be showing how our ingredients can be worked, explored, presented, reimagined. I feel like the entire gamut is needed, required, wanted, demanded. So I don't you know, for people who are really focused on the high end of fine dining and small portions, it's all good. What is important is that we work together in a concerted way, with concerted effort, to really showcase the diversity of Nigerian food, to show the roots, the history, to show how far back our knowledge of food techniques culinary excellence, how far back it stretches. And not just because there's a there's a there's a I find increasingly there's a situation where West African food is reduced to the labor of it. Um, yeah. And if we go back to agriculture, it, many people don't know that the success of the world, of Europe of European economies and American economies was thanks to the ingenuity and to the intellectual capacity of West African enslaved people 
Yeah. So the industrial revolution was fueled yeah, by, by um, advances in, 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 in processing cotton. And, and cotton just became this huge thing that was cotton at first, and then there was tobacco, there was coffee, and then there was rice. Rice grew in the American South, in the Carolinas. And what happened was that that rice became such a great commodity that it was exported to Europe. But it was off the back of the intellectual ability of West African enslaved who had knowledge of growing and planting rice in terrains, like in various terrains. And they took that knowledge to South Carolina and transferred that knowledge to, to, to the planters, to the slave planters, who through that got harvest that transformed their economies. Now, when that is spoken about often. It's spoken more about West Africans being labor, being the labor that did that. No, it was the intellectual capacity. So for me, I, I believe that every translation of food that is on the plate, you know, whether that is home, casual dining, fine dining, street food, all of these things really go to show our capacity for intellectualism, our capacity for knowledge, our capacity for techniques and styles and combining unique flavors and textures. And these are age old. So I, for me, you know, do it, whatever it is that you, if you find yourself called to do with respect to Nigerian food, do it respectfully, do it with honor. And that for me is what counts. I don't think that, you know, there's any erasure um, by reimagining it in maybe weird, but still wonderful ways. You've kind of shifted the way I think, because I just get really tired of the whole redefinition thing. And then inevitably, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like inevitably it's like, okay, okra, but deconstructed. And maybe there's like a cassava, I don't know, twirl or twist or whatever it's called. I just... I don't know, a lot of the time I just feel like, you know, why don't we explore the things that have kind of been buried by this mainstreaming of quite urban, um, urban Yoruba food, at least in, in Lagos. Um, but I suppose you're right where there needs to be this kind of very wholesome, well-rounded exploration. And like you said, there's some people who are really into the whole fine dining thing and multiple elements on the plate and the adventure of it all, who will appreciate that, you know, like deconstruction and, and the whole narrative around it. And other people like me who haven't had the privilege of having a diverse, you know, set of Nigerian food. For example, I, I have no idea what, you know, Eastern Nigerian food is like. And when it comes to the North, all I know is suya, which is really sad. <laughs> so, you know, it's like when I hear redefinition, I just think there's so much I don't know. Why do I need to see you do this cool thing with okra? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's, for me, it's important too, right? Because when we're, we're all in different stages of our, of our identity journey. Because for me, food is an intricate an intrinsic part of, of identity. And we're all at different stages of that um, as, a, as a nation, as a country. And so what some people 
what you don't know, other people might know, and they're willing to grow their knowledge by seeing other contemporary expressions. So for me, you'll always find people, you'll find people across the gamut. I don't think we need to limit ourselves because look at the West. They don't limit themselves, the global North. They don't limit themselves to, oh, now let's only do X, Y, Z. They feel like all of it is welcome. So you find people doing the entire range and the gamut. Mm. I feel sometimes that because we've been forced into a state of survival, quite often our expectations are limited by that. And we often don't have the freedom, sometimes even mentally, to to be boundless in our thoughts and in our thinking and in our approaches because we've just been oh we've always been forced to stay within confines, stay within bounds. And for me, you know, let let it be limitless. Let the let the let it overflow. Let's let explore, you know, to the to the heights and and, and let's let's cover the breath as much as we can. Let's just discover. Let's see what there is. Let's know. Let's explore. Let's try. Um, let's be limitless. Let's 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 refuse to be confined to this box. Now, the thing about you know, you made a good point about knowing something of a particular culture, Yoruba culture in this case, and this is where education is fundamental because quite often we see the differences, but we don't see the similarities. And and it's one thing I'm really trying to work hard on with the work that I do is to show us all the ways that we're similar. And it doesn't exclude, it doesn't mean the differences don't count. They're equally important. I think that working on those similarities will help us relate better. For instance, you know, all Nigerian cultures have a version of Igusi soup. It goes by different names. Mm -hmm. They all have a version of okra soup, sometimes of the okra in different states, fresh, ground, dried, you know. So it, it's it's a case really of knowledge. And this is where education is super important. We need to know who we are, what we have, the differences. Yeah. You're totally right about the Agusi because um, last year I went to Enugu. I needed to go to the National Archives there for my master's dissertation and in the hotel I just ordered what I could recognize which was a goosey (laughs) and it was I mean it was different because I suppose Yoruba people particularly love palm oil everything must be doused in palm oil (laughs) so it was definitely it, it was a it was an interesting experience because it was what I know from home, but in a very different way with not as much oil. It was a lot kind of thicker and clumpier as well. Um, yeah, and I don't know, it was weird. I felt kind of this very pan-Nigerian, you know, patriotic feeling, being there and eating something new, but at the same time familiar. You wrote an incredibly thought-provoking article called Colonial Politics Cannot Stop Me. And in it, you write about cultural appropriation. Um, So what we were talking about before with Brazil and the introduction of ingredients like cassava. 
um, and how now those are staples of our cuisine. Do you see something similar happening now? Because it seems as though, you know, foreign foods like American Southern style barbecue and mac and cheese and even Chinese food have been Nigerianized and are now completely commonplace. Well, Chinese food, I'm not surprised because the, the Chinese have always had a culinary diplomacy program. Um, Chinese food is one of the most popular cuisines across the world. And, you know, it's been part of Nigerian culture for at least since the like 60s and 70s. So I'm not surprised about that. American foods of the American South, I feel are actually returning to their birthplace because most of those foods were birthed from us by West Africans and, and other Africans in the course of the slave trade. So I feel like, you know, this is welcome home. I have nothing to say about that. I don't see that as cultural appropriation. The truth is there will always, there's cultural transfer. There's, there's, in some ways, I don't like to think of it as exchange because exchange kind of, <laughs> it presupposes uh, an equitable um, handing over and, you know, um, but, but, but I think of it as, Nigerians really love food and they do, they make the best of foods. And they, sometimes they're not very adventurous, but I think that, you know, a lot of, a lot of things are changing around that. So I don't know. I, I, I think we just get exposed to things. We see ideas. We want to explore them. Tastes are changing. People are traveling more, whether that's by plate, sitting on the couch and watching TV or, or physically. And all of that is, is creating an awareness, is creating an interest in certain dishes and items. And, you know, let's explore. And talking about, you know, the introduction of new ingredients and new foods and, and cooking methods, my mom is of the view that um, the widespread use of Maggie cubes has killed, she says, literally killed authentic um, cooking and traditional spices. What is your view on this? Do you think ingredients like Maggie cubes and ajimoto are moving us away from traditional and perhaps even healthier ways of making food tasty? A couple of things. Yes, the rise of brilliant cubes and, and you know, external kind of like quick methods of seasoning have become really pervasive. But I also see a situation where traditional Nigerian seasoning, it's, you know, is well matched. So look at the popularity and the rise in Ofada and Ayamashe two dishes that are based on traditional seasoning with fermented condiments like yuru or giri and things like that. Those things are making a comeback on a level that is unprecedented. Look, when you go to the stores, a few years ago, you wouldn't be able to find yuru on store shelves. Now you can find yuru in the deep freezer of various kinds. You can find yuru seeds dried on shelves. You can find it ground. Mm -hmm. And you, you don't find just one brand. There's several brands. So if anything, I see, and this is where education again plays a critical role because 
he who has the power and the might and the money can afford to do the marketing, right? Um, yeah. So for me, it's a case of us reclaiming, us talking about these things, sharing them, sharing the health benefits, sharing the why, sharing the sharing the different things that we know about them, the types, the origins, the processing capacity, how to how to process, what to use when. It's about creating that body of knowledge that educates and informs and it allows people make decisions thoughtfully. And the other thing is that Ajinomoto actually is monosodium glutamate, which is a naturally occurring compound, chemical compound. Mm-hmm. It's packaged and branded as a Ginomoto, but but MSG itself is a natural extract from food. And honestly, I think that it's been largely demonized because of its origins. Because if you look at it, mm-hmm. tomatoes have MSG, cheese has MSG, mushrooms, iru, they all have natural MSG. But but um, I'm not quite sure what year it was. A Japanese scientist extracted MSG. And, and sometimes I feel like origins of foods make them treat, like people treat foods with certain origins in a certain way. And I don't know if that's at the root of this disparaging views we have about MSG. Quite often there isn't enough education out there to help people make, to help people understand the context, to help people understand the political dynamics, the economic impact, and also that sometimes there is there appears to be a deliberate plan to exclude certain cultures. So MSG, there are so many different pieces of research that have been done to show that MSG isn't bad. Mm. Obviously, everything in moderation, but it's a naturally occurring compound. I don't use it myself, but it doesn't change the facts. And I think it's very important to get under the hood of some of these bold statements that are expressed as fact. And it will take it will take years for us to unravel, it will take years for us to understand, but there are certain there's certain facts that remain. And with all things food, be judicious, know your body, know what, you know, there are things that people purport are great for you that make me feel horrible. So for instance, fresh mint, I can, I can no longer drink fresh mint tea because it gives me incredible heartburn, not incredible, terrible heartburn. So do you know what I mean? That's yeah. something that is healthy that people love, but for me, it doesn't work, right? Mm. So we still have a ways to go. I mean, this is definitely the first I've heard that MSG is, you know, like an organic chemical compound because I think for so long I hear MSG and I'm running in the other direction. And you're so right. It's because when I think about it now, without really, without being conscious of it at the moment, you know, that it's happening. When people say MSG, you instantly think about Chinese food. You instantly think about, you know, made in China, bad quality. It's going to kill you. It's going to give you a heart attack over time. But then nobody will ever tell you or none of these, you know, food blogs and publications will also tell you that MSG is in fact found in many ingredients like tomatoes and mushrooms that we are told are healthy and, you know, are a must in any well-rounded diet. These things that are considered healthy 
yet products from them are considered unhealthy because of who is associated with them, right? So, yeah, there's still a lot that we have to unlearn, know, discover, unearth. It's it's a journey, but there's there's so much knowledge and information out there that is stuck in research papers that we need to bring into the public domain in simple, understandable language. On this topic of, you know, elevating, I shouldn't even say elevating, but kind of inviting the world into how we see Nigerian cuisine and how amazing we think it is. Do you even think that Nigerian cuisine needs to be considered some of the best in the world? And how do you propose Nigerians view our food culture and history outside of the Western gaze? Without a doubt, Nigerian food is some of the most amazing and delicious food that I've ever had. And I've eaten. I eat. I'm an eater. <laughs> but like, without compare, Nigerian food is heads and shoulders above many. For me, there's something about knowing who you are. I didn't realize who I was, particularly in the context of Nigerian food, till I moved abroad. And that is very key and central to this to becoming an ambassador. You know, in in Giovanni's Room, a book by James Baldwin, he says, you don't have a home until you leave it. And then when you have left it, you never can go back. This has been my personal experience because it wasn't until I moved away from Nigeria that I realized how awesome Nigerian food was and how much dimension and, and capacity it had. And I began to appreciate it just on its merits, not not as a function of Western gaze, or global North gaze, just as a function of what it was, of its wholesomeness, its deliciousness, its colors, its vibrance, the textures. And the work that I do seeks to showcase that. But beyond the plate, I mean, everything on the plate is indicative of an aspect of life. You know, you look at a plate and you see history, you see culture, you see agriculture, you see economics, you see you see social political constructs. For instance, why do we have Thai rice on our plates instead of Nigerian rice, which is of similar quality, even more delicious? Why? That's an economic issue. Yeah. That's a political issue. That's an issue to do with with so many things that are just beyond the function of eating. And I think that Nigerians need to take a greater interest in things beyond the plate. So, you know, demanding for more Nigerian products, mm-hmm. supporting more local agriculture, supporting processing of, of ingredients locally, um, working on showcasing these things, talking about them. Uh, when people come to Nigeria, let our defaults be to take them to Nigerian restaurants as opposed to look for comfortable mm. Western style. Because again, the, the economic impact of that on the Nigerian society in general is there's a, there's a capacity for that to increase. You know? So for me, it's 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 an open mind that I'm calling for. I'm calling for people to be open in the way they think about Nigerian cuisine. Sometimes I feel like we need to forget everything we ever thought we knew and start afresh to understand that this cuisine is not limited to this map map boundaries. Mm. It is something that has roots, that has anchors, that is 
present across the world. It is delicious. I feel like we should all be culinary ambassadors and cultural ambassadors, you know, rooting for Nigerian food. And Nigerians do that when when they go abroad, right? Most Nigerians tend to look for like Nigerian style restaurants or West African restaurants to eat. Mm -hmm. I, I think we need to raise our standards, our standards and our expectations of what we want. Yeah. At home and abroad. Um, we just need to give this cuisine the the hype and everything else that it deserves. This is this is my belief. And do you see a Michelin star anywhere in Nigeria's future? I don't know that it's I a want tough the Michelin. Question. No, well, the truth is, I don't know that I want the Michelin star to be my measure of success for Nigerians. Mm-hmm. Nigerian I know that it's a global measure, but I struggle quite often. Because I see that many global measures are not fair and not equitable. They have the prestige, but I don't know that the the playing field is level, right? And um, I don't want, and it's a real struggle because the Michelin star represents so much. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm tired of being, of choosing my versions and my measures of success from systems that don't honor me, that don't recognize mm-hmm. me, that don't value my place in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's high. You know, I think we, we, it's high time we start calling for more equitable, more inclusive, more considerate evaluations and measures. So Michelin star is not it for me. Um, but can can I can I see Nigerian cuisine achieving great promise? being served to to the most discerning people around the world without a doubt. Will they be wowed head over? Like if given the opportunity, there is just so much amazingness in Nigerian cuisine, so much thought, so much complexity. Mm-hmm. What people consider to be muddy flavors and and um, too hot. Many people will find that they're, they're, they're constructs and figments of, of their creation. If you give Nigerian cuisine a chance, you will be completely smitten, completely, totally taken with the deliciousness and amazingness of this food. I agree 100%. And what is on your culinary radar at the moment? Data. <laughs> I'm, I'm obsessed with data. I'm obsessed with looking at data around the world, right? Whether that's in food media or particular food media, right? So I'm trying to, I'm I'm working on a couple of projects that basically bring data to show the current state of food media across the world. The other thing that I'm I'm really working hard on is, is some research around the history of West African food and how it impacts and impacted the foods, the, the, the cultures, the cuisines, the economy of the American South through to the Caribbean. I'm um, looking at links between West African culinary excellence and, and the impact of the economies of Europe and Americas through slave trade um, so a lot of the culinary work is actually data work and information work and research work. And, and through it, I'm discovering um, dishes that have 
a very clear Nigerian expression. I'm seeing the way they've been transformed through the peculiarities of a certain time period and and a certain place in you know in the in the American South, in the Caribbean, in Brazil, and Latin America. So, yeah. That that's it. That's that's my next few months. It's really getting stuck into these themes and, and looking at politics, economics, and everything as it relates to food. I'm really excited about that. Um, I am a nerd. I love information. <laughs> I love reading. <laughs> and for me, I just feel like when you know the history of something and how far back that history spans. You know, spanning not just a across time, but also across space, just, you know, eating that thing becomes this journey and this experience. And for me, whenever that can happen, I'm just, I'm just really happy. You know, it just makes you feel warm inside. And I think, as you've said before, that's something not many Africans or not many black people have because a lot of the time our food cultures and histories are just completely sidelined and all we're good for is comfort food. And that one exciting time you had jollof rice at Mm. your flatmate sister's Mm. wedding. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) You're so right. You're so right. I've had to to say a few times, like, please don't leave me on jollof. Jollof is the, is the, equivalent of leaving you on you know like when someone sends you a, a whatsapp message hmm? yeah. they're not quite ghosting <laughs> you they read the message and that's where it ends no response leave you on red they, they just <laughs> leave you on red you know and i'm just like nah 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 don't jollof rice is like i love jollof rice with my heart with my soul because it it just speaks so much about how food travels about it's just Jollof rice is an amazing icon to be studied. And there is mm. there is a lot more beyond jollof. There's a lot more around that, around our cultures and our cuisines. And we need to, it needs to be beyond the table, right? First of all, we need to even make it to the table. We need to be sitting at tables where other cultures and cuisines are sitting at. There needs to be that space us. We demand it. We need it. And also, we are entitled to it by virtue of our contributions to the world. We we need, we deserve that place at the table. And then, you know, beyond that, there's, there's, there's the rigor, there's the academic intellectual part of what we know about food. That needs to be recognized, accepted, included. Right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Work to be done, but we're, we're up to it. Yeah. <laughs> My last question um, for this section is, if there was one dish that defines you, what would it be and why? <laughs> I know this is a tough one. What, one dish that defines me. So I make a cassava and coconut salad that is just this multiplicity of color, flavor, texture, and amazingness. You have the interesting, chewy, crunchy texture of cassava, cream of fresh coconut and sweet. You have fresh lime juice, zesty, bubbly, um, bright. You have chilies and sweet peppers, so hot, spicy. You have nuts, 
texture, crunch, nutty. Like, it's just this, and then the herbs, freshness. Um, and it's just this really complex salad that was born out of street food. So there's still some street, some, there's still some, some street in me. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but it's just it's just an incredibly complex salad that is at home, you know, in a plantain leaf or moi moi leaf sitting on the couch as it is in fancy crystals at a table to serve, you know, the highest authorities in the land. So it, it just has that it can it's amazing across boundaries. It's colorful, it's bright, it's refreshing, it's comforting. But I think most of all, it's amazing because people look at it and think that this is more than the sum of its parts. Like, who would have thought that just putting these ingredients together in this certain way can lead to such amazingness? So yeah, that is me. (laughs) And I'm owning it. (laughs) (laughs) And I also think that's kind of the thing about Nigerian food as well. One of my favorite things to eat of all time. I love beans, so it's akara or moi moi because I feel like they're kind of the same-ish but different. And depending on my mood, I'll go for different things. And back when akara was a mystery to me, honestly, all I all I knew is that there were beans in it. When I actually sat down and watched some someone cook it, I just thought it's really not that hard. How does so few ingredients create this perfect, crunchy, fluffy ball of joy? You know what I mean? Yep. I feel like that's the best part of Nigerian food. It's like your your auntie or your grandma or your mom throws a few things in a pot and a couple of minutes or maybe hours later, it's the most magical thing you've ever had. Yep. Then that's, again, that is where you see evidence of that intellectual technique. Mm-hmm brought to the fore if it seems simple to you try to make it then you know that look that just the flick of the wrist the particular consistency the the ratios Mm -hmm. then you understand that this is beyond just slapping things together throwing things together as as it's commonly thought of, of of african food yeah Case in point is when I tried to make moi moi, that was a disaster that I never tried again. <laughs> I was and like, clearly there's more to this than throwing things in a blender. <laughs> and that that was, and guess what? That's why I started doing some of the work that I did in documenting Nigerian recipes. Because like we're so used to seeing them done off the cuff that we think it's easy and we take it for granted. The first time I tried to make moi moi when I was abroad, it was a disaster. The moi moi came out rock hard. And so the next time I made it and I got it right, I wrote that recipe down. And this is where documentation comes in as a real core element of preserving culinary heritage and history. Write it down and then people can replicate it. It can live on. So that's one of the things that drove me into, into blogging and writing, just to be able to document consistent recipes that are successful, but that also are that taste of home. And in this next section of the episode, I'm going to ask you a couple of rapid fire questions. Just like, you know, respond from the heart, whatever comes out first, you will not be judged. (laughs) First of all, nobody can judge me. I'm a 44 year old woman. I have earned my stripes. Nobody can judge me. Finn. <laughs> but go, go on. Okay. 
Agbalumo or mango? Agbalumo mango. I think I'll have to go for Agbalumo because it is the epitome of a journey for me. It's, yeah, I've let myself run ragged with my love for it and I'm, I'm all the better as the world is for it. So, Agbalumo. Pounded yam or amala? What is this woman? <laughs> ah. I mean, they have to be hard. They have to be hard questions. Pandadiyama gusi with stockfish and dry fish on a Sunday afternoon. Amala in abula form any day of the week. One hot sunny afternoon in Lagos. Oh gosh, Pandadiyama. Fresh from the mortar though. Not pounded. Yeah, yeah, never pounded. Sweet with, with, with yams from Edo State specifically. And with a goosey, <laughs> a goosey balls that are soft like curd and oh my God. <laughs> multiple courses or one large comfort meal oh no multiple courses definitely i'm very much a grazer and i like the idea of having options so small chops for me any day um i like just like and like um lebanese style medze you know where you have like lots of different things on the table that's me i like to mix and match and and join things in holy matrimony. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. You're about, to make the... <laughs> You're about to make the best jollof rice. Basmati or good old long grain? Yeah. These days I'm turning towards a specific kind of basmati. It's not, basmati has grains. And I like golden cellar basmati because it's very similar to long grain. It's processed in the same way. And so, like, the deliciousness of the tomato sauce and everything else comes through. Gourmet or home cooking? Home cooking. Jollof rice or fried rice? Jollof. Ah! <laughs> uh, except my mom's fried rice. Oh, gosh. Jollof. <laughs> quick meals or long, slow cooking? It depends. Quick, quick, most... Oh, gosh. Which kind of questions are these? <laughs> <laughs> Quick, quick, quick meals most times, but I, I do like the therapy and the meditative process in cooking a long meal and in prepping and just really, you know, communing with the ingredients and with my cooking pot and spoon. Mm. Family style or plated? Family style. Again, it's that thing of being able to mix and match and just the yeah. casualness of it all. Alfresco or AC on full blast? Now, <laughs> Ah, it depends on where I am because our fresco in some countries is just fly a fly fest. Um, mm-hmm. And it depends on what I'm eating. God, banga soup and starch on that hot day, on that cold day. Right. Uh, um, <laughs> mm, okay, our fresco because that's my future life. I see myself, you know, dining on my porch, my French doors and my French windows open with a view of hills and mountains and lots of green so alfresco is in my future instagram or twitter instagram i'm very much a visual person same beach holiday or city break beach holiday or city break City break. Ah! (laughs) City, (laughs) city city break because i'm thinking farmers markets supermarkets to shop but I, I long for a beach holiday, but I think at the heart of it, I might be a city break type of 
girl. Hey. Oh. Lip gloss or lipstick? Lipstick now. Matte. Grilled or fried? Oh, gosh. Plantain. Uh, <laughs> These are just such unholy <laughs> questions. Um, grilled or fried? Uh, it's a tough one. Grilled. Two years in that camp. Grilled. Salt or spice? Spice. And lastly, in the kitchen or over an open fire? In the kitchen. Same. I thought you'd go with the open fire, actually. Why? I don't know. It just <laughs> seems very, like, you know, indigenous, taking it back to the past. <laughs> I, I, do, I do like that. But um, there's so many things that I, if I look at the totality of the things that I'd like to do in the kitchen, that's just one portion of it. Um, so I, I like to bake. And there's so many other things that I might not be able to do as confidently over and over by. True. All right. So moving on to the final segment of this episode, and that's the three texts that have shaped the way you think. Okay. Three books. I'll start with Women, Food, and God. It's a book by a lady, Janine Roth, that really talks about how food is more than eating. She talks about how everything on your plate is about life and encourages mindful eating, but also looks at the root cause of people who have certain views towards food. So I used to be a comfort eater for years and it was instinctive. It wasn't something I ever thought about. If I was happy, I went to food. If I was sad, especially I went to food. And it wasn't until Janine's book that I learned to recognize the patterns and not just keep defaulting to these ways of comfort, but to actually sit down with myself and say, oh yeah, what is causing this problem? I felt that I had used food as an escape for so long that I had stopped dealing with problems. You know, I would just eat and then just wish them away. But she actually made me sit down with myself, reflect, converse, and solve the problems regardless of how painful they were or how how scared I was of them. So for, for helping me confront my inner self and um, helping me become a better person using food, um, Janine Roth is definitely in, in my book Hall of Fame. And then there's, in the book, there's also a beautiful poem that just talks about reteaching ourselves our loveliness and and just really appreciating ourselves for who we are. It's called St. Francis and the So, and it's written by an Irish poet called Galway Canal in the 80s. It's just a beautiful poem. Then there's The Art of Possibility, written by Rosamund and Benjamin Zander. And it talks about living in a world with a growth mindset and living with abundance being kind, being thoughtful, being courageous, but all from a place of love, of meaning, of respect, of celebration, of honor, of kindness. And, and, you know, the possibilities are all the things that emerge when we think right. And when we have this notion that there is enough room in the sky for all of us to fly and you know we're not territorial about a lot of the things that we do it's just it, i'm giving i mean both books that i talked about in fact all three books that i <laughs> i'm going to talk about i've given away 
numerous copies because they've made such an impact on me. The last book is on managing yourself, and it's a compilation of articles from the Harvard Business Review. And it's just brilliant articles that I found really useful in seeing how far I've come. So I read it at the end of my 15-year career in oil and gas. And a lot of the struggles that I outlined in the book were things that I could actually attest to because I had been through them. So uh, managing yourself was just really a toolkit for navigating this world and being the best version of yourself for yourself, finding out what's important to you, which is super important. A lot of times we we think that we want a job that will pay us so well, and that we forget, and then we forget that um, you know you can't buy happiness. You can buy comfort, but you can't buy happiness. Mm. And sometimes that that counts and that matters. So it's just these books have given me lenses and perspectives to view not just the world, but to see myself in the world, to understand how I want to navigate the world, to understand who I am whose I am and what I'm called for and how that is relevant in the world that we live in today. So they're definitely my top three texts and I I recommend them highly. Thank you so, so much, Osoz. I've had such a great time talking to you. And yeah, I can't wait for this episode to be up and for people to listen to this because I just think your responses were fire. Thank you for having me on. Um, I always say that I really like to do interviews um, and discussions because I get asked questions that really make me think and reflect. Um, so it's also a time of period and, and, and of growth and learning for me. So thank you for having me on. And I hope that you know this helps people seeking answers and, and well done for the fantastic job you're doing convening bringing people together to talk thank you to find more information on Azaz, go to her website kitchenbutterfly.com and follow her on instagram at kitchenbutterfly and twitter at kitchenbutterfly for twitter that's k-i-t-c-h-n-b-u-t-t-e-r-f-l-y you can find me on instagram at myawa underscore reads where i'll be reading and reviewing books thank you for listening